0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. Learn more about their momentum at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.
1: Diamonds are more than pretty objects. Passed down over centuries, they can tell the story of a family, a country, or a past. But that story is often one of colonization and violence. For many South Asians, the diamond that invokes this painful colonial history is the Koh-i-Noor, at more than 105 carats, it's one of the largest diamonds in the world, and it was removed from the region by the British Empire in the 19th century from what is now modern day India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh. Today, the diamond is held by Britain's royal family, but the death of Queen Elizabeth last September revived calls for its return. In February, Buckingham Palace announced that Queen Consort Camilla would not wear the Kohinoor diamond in her crown for the coronation of King Charles, but is that enough? How should we handle artifacts taken during colonial periods in modern times? And what do empires owe the nations they colonized? After the break, we bring you our conversation on the complicated history of the Kohi Noor Diamond and how it became a stand-in for reckoning with the colonial past. I'm Celeste Headley, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into, so stay with us.
2: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
1: We're bringing you our discussion on the Kohinoor Diamond. 1A host Jen White was joined by William Dalrymple from New Delhi, India. He's the co author of Kohinoor, the story of the world's most infamous diamond. He also co hosts a podcast called Empire. Also joining the conversation was Priyamvada Gopal. She's a professor of post colonial studies at the University of Cambridge and Rohit Day, an associate professor of history at Yale University. We'll let Jen take it from here. William, what is the Kohinoor diamond, and why is it significant?
3: The Kohinoor is a diamond that was originally uh, mined in the Golconda region uh, of India. Its uh, it, uh, diamonds in that part of the world are alluvial, so it's more like panning for gold in the in the American West than the sort of you know King Solomon's mines with chain slaves underground or some, some image like that. They, it would have been sieved. Uh, from uh, a dead alluvial river. And uh, there is a whole bunch of legends attached to this diamond. In 1739, we know that it was taken from the Mughal court uh, in Delhi uh, uh, by uh, a Persian warlord called Nader Shah. And the first definite 100% um, certified uh, reference we have uh, in history to its existence is when it's on show in Herat in Afghanistan, having been plundered from India uh, by Nadia Shah, the Persian. Uh, and uh, there are older legends that it was, you know, once the eye of an idol in a temple of the Kakatiya dynasty. There are stories that it was looted by various warlords, taken to Delhi. But none of that is actually at all established in historical fact, there were many large diamonds uh, in India, and after the Kohinoor became famous, after it appeared in the Great Exhibition of 1851 in London, um, the stories of all the other uh, diamonds which had been forgotten got sort of transposed onto this one, mm. so it got given this long and mythical history. And having been made by the Victorian British into a symbol of their empire. It was put at the very front of the Great Exhibition in 1851. It was, the, it was the most viewed object. I think something like one in five people in Victorian Britain queued to see this thing. And at that point, it became literally the jewel in the crown. It became the symbol for the Victorians.
4: Well, Professor Gopal, I, I want to hear what the Kohinoor diamond symbolizes for South Asians.
5: Um, Well, I think it symbolizes uh, the loss of wealth during the colonial period, the uh, sense of impoverishment from the colonial endeavor. And I think it sits at the top of a symbolic pile of the removal of wealth. Um, But I think at the same time, it's a kind of... um, Odd focus because the diamond in itself is not something that most ordinary South Asians would have, um, you know, any real connection to. They would not have seen it. It would have been symbolically with one ruler um, or the other. But it has come to symbolise the extraction, the plunder, the loot uh, that colonialism. Um, inflicted. But I think in a, in a very strange way, it also takes our attention away from the much larger kinds and more consequential kinds of plunder that empire involved and the kinds of immiseration and impoverishment that was inflicted. And the diamond is not a very good uh, symbol really of the actuality um, of exploitation and impoverishment.
4: Oh, we got this email from Stuart who says, it should be noted that while the United Kingdom Acquisition of the diamond was essentially theft under the guise of a treaty. It has passed through many hands in many countries and is claimed by several entities. The history of this gem is much more complicated than a simple story of colonial plunder. Professor Day, multiple countries, including India, Pakistan, Iran, and Afghanistan, have claimed original ownership over the Kohinoor diamond. How have modern national borders complicated this question of ownership?
6: Um, thank you for your question. Uh, it's not just modern states, but there have also been claims made by descendants of the family, um, priests of a temple where the gem was apparently promised in Orissa. In um, and the multiplicity of the claims is often used by Britain um, in, in questions of contested heritage to say that it's so complicated, we can't actually turn it to anyone. Uh, I think um, what, what these tensions make clear is that there are multiple ways to recognize uh, forms of state and forms of power that existed in South Asia, different kinds of communities and heritages. And um, the just the fact that multiple claims exist do not uh, take away from the fact that the original removal of the diamond was done through um, uh, basically an act of conquest and uh, through a sort of uh, formalized fake legality.
4: Well, and Professor Day, you say even though there's debate over who owns the diamond, the outrage around it has brought South Asians together. How?
6: Um, I think um, it, it, it underlines a common experience that uh, people uh, from the region have felt, both in terms of, um, as Professor Gopal mentioned, a kind of symbolic uh, loss of sovereignty, but a reminder that the diamond is only one of many objects uh an actual wealth that was drained from the region. Uh, the economist Utsap Naik puts the figure close to 45 trillion. It's quite clear that the industrialization of Britain coincides with its expansion of empire in South Asia, And sort of even a walk into the British Museum would would show galleries after galleries of objects, many of which have far more value to uh, ordinary South Asians that are sitting there. Um, And while South Asian polities are divided in many things, they are agreed on this common experience of of, of loss, and in some ways the inability of uh, the British state to acknowledge um, uh, what had been done.
4: Well, that takes us to this message we received from Jerry in Florida.
1: I wanted to make a mention about the British Museum. I was really excited to go there. It was my first time in in London. But when I walked in the door, I almost fell out because everything in there was from another country. They had dismantled walls and and all kinds of architectural things, statues, everything in there from another country. It was the most um, disheartening thing i would ever seen. And I couldn't finish the tour. It was just beyond measure. That they would call that the British Museum and then put everything in there from other people's cultures. They need to give it back. Every piece of it needs to be given back. And they need to put the things in their museum that they
5: created, not other people's stuff.
4: Professor Gopal, I'd, I'd love to hear your response to that voicemail from Jerry.
5: I mean, yes, it's true. It's famously true that the British Museum is full of things um, that are not British. Uh, in the first instance and that the British Museum is in itself um, a, a kind of contained history of Empire there are a great many objects in there that are there are not diamonds but that are in fact of, of great value to um, to many cultures including Aboriginal cultures in Australia including to uh, communities in in North Africa that uh, you know so unlike the diamond there are there are objects that are objects of worship objects of use objects of veneration uh, that are there. Um, There has begun a conversation about returning some of these objects, although by and large, I think the British establishment, the British art establishment is still uh, digging its heels in um, on that question. I should point out, um, just in the interests of fairness, that the Metropolitan Museum in New York also has a lot of objects uh, that are from other countries. So although this is Clearly, most egregious and obvious in the case of the British Museum. Museum culture in the West has largely Depended on the unequal power relations between the West and the countries it "quote-unquote" discovered, um, or colonized, or or conquered, and bringing things to the West, uh, whether that's Europe or North America, uh, and putting them in museums is very much part of that project of of uh, ine- uh, you know unequal relations and power. William,
4: what practices around artifacts taken from countries and put on display in museums are, are we seeing develop? Today, are, are museums starting to approach this question any differently?
3: Yes. I mean, I think there's been a huge shift of opinion um, in the last five, ten years. It's, this is a moving uh, story and things are happening that you would never have imagined to have happened uh, as recently as a decade ago. Uh, the director of the Victorian Albert Museum, a guy called Tristram Hunt, who used to be a, a Labour cabinet minister, has been uh, trying to get the law changed because at the moment it's impossible for any um, government museum to actually. Uh, allow Its trustees are not allowed to give things back as the law change as the law stands. So that so first of all, you need an act of parliament to change the law to give uh, museums discretion uh, to begin talking this through uh, and, and even beginning to return things. At the moment, they're simply not allowed to. Uh, and so I think you are seeing this move. I mean, there were, uh, Neil MacGregor when he was the uh, in charge of the British Museum, began a, uh, various ideas falling short of actual full return, such as some sort of rotating um, treasures, um, particularly I think the, the Benin bronzes were things that were under discussion, whether different European collections could rotate uh, their collections uh, w- with museums in West Africa. Uh, but I think the whole thing is moving very fast and and, and things which w- you wouldn't have imagined were even open to discussion a short while ago are now being openly discussed.
4: Professor Day, how are we also seeing museums and other institutions, even if they're not returning the objects, perhaps making an effort to build more historical context around them
6: within these institutions? Um So, as uh, Mr. Darupal mentioned, I mean, these are conversations that have happened in recent years. They often um, uh, claim to be stimmied by existing law. Um, International law scholars who work on heritage, most recently Evelyn Kampfans and Saurabhi have argued that many of our laws are really designed to deal with the loot of art post the Second World War in Europe. So they're often limited by you have to prove that there was actual warfare. They're often limited by a statute of limitations. And the colonial period doesn't necessarily fall within this easy definition. That said, there's been considerable pressure on uh, several kinds of objects, not just to restore them to museums back in um, the areas they came from, but also think a little bit about how those objects were used in the first place. Um, Is returning something from a museum in London to a museum in Delhi enough, especially if the object itself comes from a community that has a different relationship with it? In some ways, the conversation around Indigenous objects has uh, has moved faster, partly because there is a clear recognition of Indigenous heritage Um, in various frameworks of international law. And um, in in some ways, it's it's, it's been easier for several states in which indigenous populations live, like Australia and New Zealand, to sort of make these claims um, uh, against European countries. Uh, But I I, I feel like the turn to legality is often just used as an excuse. In fact, um, even with the acquisition of the Kohinoor, the British were very concerned that it should look legal. So even though the object was acquired um, through war loot, it was carefully staged in the way it was presented to the monarch to claim that it was a gift. So uh, law here is often brought up as an obstruction, whereas there are ways to move around it, uh, um, which engage local communities and not just the states in post-colonial countries.
4: Well, the koinor diamond is far from the only gem with a fraught colonial past. In fact, the diamond that Queen Consort Camilla is wearing in place of the koinor for the coronation are several diamonds from South Africa called the Cullinan Three, Four, and Five. They were given as a gift to King Edward the Seventh, but critics argue they're still relics of British imperialism. Um, Professor Gopal, you said that the koinor diamond is not the the best stand-in for dressing the issue of colonial looting and violence, but how have diamonds stood in for those larger conversations?
5: Well, I think diamonds have stood in for the larger conversation in as much as our understanding of colonialism and decolonization is about the loss of sovereignty or the conquest of one king by another king or or emperor. So, you know, this there is an idea that colonization is the transferring of sovereignty from, a, a an, as it were, a native king uh, to the British emperor. And in that sense, um, and, and although it is not untrue, what we get is a story of colonialism as transactions between elites, conflicts between elites, uh, rich people losing or gaining uh, treasures. And I'm, I'm not saying that that is not a significant um, aspect of how conquest and colonialism work. I'm saying that uh, a singular focus on something like the Kohinoor obscures the other losses. And you're quite right that the Cullinan diamonds will be on the, on the Queen Consort's um, uh, crown. And it is a reminder that the Kohinoor is just one um, among a great many objects that are in the royal collections, a great many objects that we don't even know about because of the secrecy laws that prevent us knowing exactly what the uh, royal family has and, and, and how they acquired it. There is a lot of work to be done in unearthing just what the royal family has in terms of colonial plunder and loot. But I think my point was that there is a much more substantial and widespread immiseration and transferring of uh, wealth from uh, the colonies, whether in Africa, the Caribbean, or in South Asia to Britain, and that that accounting, I mean, Utsa Patnaik has done a little bit of it, and uh, but I think that there is a much larger accounting to be done of the extent to which Britain, uh, and I'm not even bringing in the other European colonial powers, the extent to which Britain and other colonial powers actually became wealthy from the po- project of colonialism.
1: You're listening to our discussion of the Khoi Diamond and its colonial past. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this quick break.
2: Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let's get back to the conversation on the koh noor Diamond with 1A host Jen White. We'll get back to the conversation with a voicemail from one of you.
0: Hi, this is Marion from Michigan, and I have some questions about Queen Camilla's refusal to wear the famous jewel. So, one, was the famous
4: jewel actually forcibly stolen from India by Great Britain, or was it a gift to
1: Queen Victoria? And secondly, can King Charles unilaterally return the jewel, or does he have to get approval from Parliament? And thirdly,
4: should the U.S. and Canada return North America to indigenous North American Indians whose best lands were stolen and confiscated by force or the nearly universal breakage of treaties by the U.S. government? Marion, thanks for that message. Okay, so three questions there, and let's take them one at a time. William, first, how did the or diamond get into the hands of the British?
3: So at that point, uh, the uh, British government had effectively leased out uh, its colonial uh, power in India to a corporation, the East India Company. Um, and in 1839, the East India Company, which had its own private army of 200,000 soldiers who were um, double the size of the British army. It's, it's like, imagine Microsoft with, you know, regiments of uh, of tanks or something. Uh, it's a terrifying concept, a cooperation with an army. And they, they took on the Sikh uh, armies. Uh, and at, in 1839, at the surrender of the Sikhs, uh, the Punjab was... Uh, Annexed uh, by the company, but the ambitious Governor General, Lord Dalhousie, who wished to become Prime Minister, um, without consulting his bosses at the East India Company, personally gave the diamond to the Crown, and it was obviously impossible for the directors to uh, to gainsay uh, his gift. So it was taken by force in the uh, in the aftermath of a. Um, of a a defeat, effectively at the point of a bannock.
4: Well, Professor Gopal, how does this story square with the version given by the British government and the royal family?
5: Um, i'm i'm actually not sure what the, the uh, british royal family's official story is i mean there is there is uh, i think uh the claim that it was a gift but we have to remember that the situation in which dalip singh the young heir to ranjit singh was brought to britain and was made to hand over um uh, you know goods including including the diamond um was a situation of coercion of of um unequal uh power. So there is I think that there is uh, uh, much to be said about the idea of the gift in circumstances of conquest. Um, so I, I, I don't think there is actually a, a really clear story uh, beyond the fact of conquest and the handing over of the jewel uh, that we have about how it came into the hands of the royal family.
4: Well, and Professor Kopal, I'll give you Marion's second question. What would it take for the Koinor to be returned?
5: I think this is probably a question uh, Professor Day can answer better in terms of the legalities, as I understand it. That um, I don't think the royal family can, in fact, single-handedly return it. There would certainly need to be some form of parliamentary authorization. There would need to be some form of uh, parliamentary debate and changing of the law, uh, I imagine. But there is no evidence that there is any movement within the royal family to even begin to consider uh, the, the fact of uh, possession as in any way uh, problematic. And there is. No sense that they would, you know, return it. I think the royal family, by by not having Camilla wear this um, in in the Queen Consort's crown, is taking the British establishment's preferred route to discussing the difficulties of empire, and that is just set it aside and don't talk about it. I I, I don't think that we're anywhere near talking about the return of the diamond at this point. Professor
4: Day, anything to add?
6: Sure. I'd just like to perhaps emphasise the role that uh, the British royal family. Um, plays vis-a-vis the empire. So in the 19th century, um, the house, the royal house, was comprised of, um, basically had origins in minor German aristocracy. They felt, uh, Queen Victoria in particular, felt somewhat um, uh, that they were not as prestigious as many of the European continental monarchies. The conquest of India, the assumption of the title of Empress of India, the staging of the Kohinoor in the crown were all attempts by the monarchy to increase its public visibility and prestige uh, internationally. So the, the history of empire, particularly in India, and that of the crown are quite intimately tied. Um, Recent work by scholar Philip Murphy has shown that even after the end of empire, the Commonwealth plays an outsized role in how the monarchy sees itself in modern Britain. And on various issues, we find that the monarchy stands at odds with even the British government vis-a-vis the Commonwealth. Um, Notionally, the the Crown is supposed to only act on advice of the um, uh, Prime Minister and the Cabinet, but there are several issues that the Crown has been able to assert uh, its will, or at least express its desires, So if the monarchy really wants to uh, uh, make amends and change things, there are mechanisms through which they can operate through advice, through persuasion uh, vis-a-vis their their officers in the government.
4: Uh, Professor Gopal, the story India itself has offered about the diamond has been inconsistent over the years. It's demanded it to be returned, but also claimed that it was a gift to the British. Where is that inconsistency coming from?
5: Well, I think the on the one hand, the inconsistency is coming from the fact that the diamond itself has a has a very checkered and complicated history, and has passed hands um, several times. Um, and conquest, not just the British conquest, but other conquest, other wars, other very uh, other episodes of great violence uh, and dispossession are part of its history. I think there is an awareness that there is no simple uh, return of the diamond to. India. But I think in the Indian context, there is going to be a bigger problem now. I mean, we know that most recently they uh, suggested that it was a gift and, and they weren't going to ask for it to be returned. But India, under Hindu national governance, it is in the hands of uh, right-wing Hindu nationalist government at this point, is busy erasing the Muslim and Mughal parts of its history. There are, there are actual textbooks from which the era of the Mughals and what the Mughals did and their presence in India over several hundred years is actually being removed. Now, in the face of this erasure, uh, a very, very troubling erasure, um, exactly how are you going to lay claim? to the diamond, because the diamond will make no sense uh, uh, in relation to India if you don't have Mughal history. So I think India is in a, in a very complicated position uh, at this particular historical juncture in relation to the diamond. But I also don't think, for instance, that there is South Asian unity around the diamond. I think that if there was an attempt to return the diamond, I think we would also have immediate conflict across South Asia, across Afghanistan, and perhaps Iran, uh, about Whom the diamond belongs to. And in a a way, the fact that the diamond doesn't have a clear owner is one of its most brilliant facets.
4: Well, and William, I know this isn't necessarily your area of expertise, but as Miriam mentioned in her message, the U.S. continues to have its own debate about what the government owes the groups, the U.S. government owns the groups it's stolen from. How do you see that conversation in the U.S. connected to this conversation about things that were confiscated or stolen during colonialism?
3: I'm completely the wrong person to ask about the U.S. situation, but I'd like to uh, agree strongly with what Prima Bada just said about the complication of of a Hindu nationalist government that have uh, completely erased Mughal history. Uh, When you go to museums in Delhi, there there are almost no Mughal objects on display. This is a Mughal jewel. Uh, And the one Mughal museum which there was in the Red Fort, the Mughal uh, headquarters, uh, which was a, a small museum that used to be in the hammam, the bathhouse, has recently been uh, taken down and not replaced. And I know there have been discussions uh, uh, about uh, uh, replacing it, which have been nixed on the on the view that you could possibly do it in the current in the current climate. So it's it's a very complicated story. This the other thing to say is that as well as the the the, the sister of the Koi Noor is another gem called the Daria Noor which is in Tehran, uh, in, Tehran in, in Bank Meli. Uh, and I think one of the things that highlights how much this is about colonialism um, is, the, is the fact that no one has ever tried to get the Darienur back. It's almost completely forgotten. It was taken at the same time by the same warlord. Um, but it is entirely because of the fact that the British government turned this into a symbol of colonial loot, that it is now sorry a, a symbol of colonial triumph, that it is now become this this symbol of colonial loot, and and it, and the Victorians turning it into a symbol of their victory have now um, saddled the current uh, monarchy and the government with with a uh, a symbol of of all that colonial countries have lost, all that has been plundered, all that's been taken from them.
4: I want to make sure we get to Marion's third question about. The U.S. And, and its continuing debate over what it owes the groups it's stolen from, specifically indigenous groups, Professor Day, how do you think the U.S. it can be thinking, should be thinking about its responsibility to addressing past harms?
6: Um, I I believe there are several um, uh, groups and actors that are advancing um, questions of indigenous land justice. There have been a number of um, court cases in the U.S. in Canada and Australia which are trying to return sovereignty, revenues um, and control over decision-making to what are variously called First Nations indigenous communities. Uh, It's been a slow process. Uh, It's not gained entire widespread acceptability but as with any struggle I think this will only get stronger in the future and there are ways in which um, as allies people can support um, and I'm here thinking about recent judgments from the U.S. Supreme Court and, and the Canadian Supreme Court.
4: We got this email from Lydia who says, one argument I sometimes hear for keeping artifacts in Western museums is the risk of loss in developing countries due to corruption, like in Rio de Janeiro museum fire. Is there any validity to this? And Robert writes, don't overlook that the diamond and other artifacts are safe and properly curated. How would they have fared in their own countries? Professor Gopal, your response?
5: Well, I mean, this is a very old argument and it is a civilizational and I'm afraid a borderline racist argument. There is no evidence uh, that countries outside the West are unable to look after their artefacts and the the large majority of these artefacts were in use. They were looked after by communities, they were in temples, they were in in communities, they were uh, part of the living vibrant life uh, of these societies. So it is a fatuous and bad faith and frankly racist idea that it's only the West that knows how to look after objects. Certainly, if you want to think simply in terms of very wealthy and very well resourced museums keeping things in cupboards for display, then yes, money probably does help. But there is absolutely no evidence that communities to which objects belong have no way of of looking after them properly.
4: Let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Zafar in Chicago.
0: I am from Pakistan, former British colony, and I think that, I mean, returning stolen artifacts is the absolute minimum of what uh, England, France, Belgium, Germany should all be doing. Um, I think, I mean, it should go as far as reparations. If you look at the economy of the Mughal Empire before colonization, had it not been absolutely ravaged by exploitation and extraction of resources and 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 just the human toll, it would be one of the strongest, most developed economies in the world. That chance, that future was stolen, and I think that returning artifacts is the absolute bare minimum that should be done.
4: So far, thanks for that message. We also got this email from Melissa, who says England should give the Koh-i-Noor back. They have no legitimate claim to it, and they have so many stolen riches they should be embarrassed. It's the only proper thing to do. I'm Indian by way of Trinidad, thanks to British human traffickers, and I can say that those folks have taken way more from us than they could ever make up for. Returning this jewel would be a start. Professor Day, briefly, how does the debate over the future of the Koh-i-Noor diamond fit into broader conversations about reparations for former colonies?
6: Um, so, as Professor Kapal mentioned, the Koheniwar actually stands in as a handy symbol around questions of reparation. Uh, it also has to be uh, acknowledged that the experience of empire was very different in different parts of the world. For example, um, areas and communities that were subject to the slave trade had had a very different kind of violence inflicted on them than other regions where um, conquest led to sort of um, other kinds of economic extraction. Um, but I think the important thing is to first begin the conversation. Secondly, to sort of pick up on the question question of, of, of access um, you know the narrative that these objects remain inside Britain and are look, well looked after doesn't acknowledge the fact that for most people in the Empire getting to Britain is not just prohibitively expensive it's also often barred due to a variety of immigration rules so the on reparations have to be tied to a conversation around mobility and access across um, a, across former territories and, and finally um, there has to be a certain kind of, of, of economic quantification um, and, and, and these conversations have begun particularly with respect to the Caribbean but as we move towards discussion around climate justice, around questions that we face in the world today, it's important to account for, to, to bring in this past accounting of, of, of colonial extraction as, as we make new policies.
1: Big thanks to our guests. Rohit Day is an associate professor of history at Yale University. Also joining us was William Dalrymple. He's the co author of Kohinoor, the story of the world's most infamous diamond. He also co hosts a podcast called. Empire. And Priyamvada Gopal, she's a professor of post-colonial studies at the University of Cambridge. Thanks to all of you. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley in for Jen White. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR.
2: What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast.